Would you uh, put your thumb in your Bible into Luke chapter 7? Let's pray. Just prepare our hearts before we open up God's Word. Father, we are so very grateful for your Word, for your goodness in giving it to us because you speak to us so clearly through your Word. Every time we have opportunity to open, to, to study it, to read it, to, to have it preached before us, Lord, it's an opportunity for you to speak to us. And so, Father, we invite you through your Spirit's ministry to just point out something in our lives that we need to be encouraged by or possibly even rebuked. But my prayer, Father, is that each of us, as your children, would leave this place with something. Something that we know we need to possibly apply this day, this week, for your glory and our great good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me start by asking you a question you may or may not agree with, but I hope in the next uh, 20 or so minutes to be able to persuade you. And it's this. As a believer, I'm speaking to those who are Christians, those who have devoted their lives to Christ. As a believer, you get to choose. You personally get to choose every single day of your life. You get to choose how much God chooses to bless you. Did you hear that? Now, as good Canadians, that sometimes doesn't always feel right, does it? That sounds a little bit arrogant or boastful, and we're not really boastful people. We've got a few cousins to the south who are really good at that. But we're not, you know, we get to tell God what to... No, no, that's not what I'm saying by that. But if you take a look at the New Testament, you'll see a principle of sowing and reaping. And as I've been driving up yesterday, up the... The, the, the island and coming into Parksville and seeing farmland. This, this sowing and reaping principle is found throughout the, the New Testament. What you sow, you can expect to reap, right? If you sow sparingly, expect that you'll be reaping sparingly. If you sow generously, you can expect a generous harvest. The problem that we have with this as, as fellowship folks is that some within the church have taken this principle, put it on steroids, and messed it up. It's the health and wealth gospel. You know, everybody should have a pink Cadillac in their driveway. Just claim it. And it's a lot of nonsense. I'll see it clearly up front. I mean, Jesus didn't even have a pillow to place his head down. He didn't have a pink Cadillac. He didn't even have a donkey. But it, nonetheless, the principle is still true. The Christian who understands this principle knows that as I learn what God loves and what He blesses, as I look to His Word and read His Word and study His Word and learn the promises and from the parables, the principles and the precepts, and I find out what he blesses, the prudent, the wise believer follows these things. Because these are the things God blesses. We get to choose every day how God chooses to bless us. By following those things, we know already he, that he blesses. Now, there's a story here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Because... There is this interconnection, this relationship between my capacity to believe God at His word and His blessing that follows. Jesus, on the very subject matter in Matthew 9.29, says, According to your faith, it will be done to you. So there's something according to my faith. Okay. He then goes on to say, in Mark 9, verse 23, Anything is possible if a person believes. Anything. 
is it possible if we have the capacity to trust God, to believe Him at His word, to extend, exercise our faith that God will come through on what He says, there is blessing that follows. There is blessing that follows. When I was trying to help my young son at that time, he's now 25, but when he was probably five or six, I'm trying to teach my five or six-year-old as a young father what it means to live by faith. And conceptually, that's sometimes difficult for adults to get a hold of. And I said, you know, it's a poor analogy, but it's the best I could come up with then. I said, Alec, faith is like a muscle. And if you want to be big and strong and muscular like his dad, what did he know, eh? Look at me. But, I mean, he's a little kid. If you want to be big and strong and muscular like your dad, you're going to have to exercise your muscles. If you choose not to, you're not going to be big and strong. The same is true with faith. You can, you can choose not to, but if you exercise your faith on a regular basis, your faith gets stronger. And, and, and we have all experienced, I hope we've all experienced that, you know, things that we used to struggle with or even doubt God for 10 years ago, we don't anymore. Why is that? Because we've been taking baby, baby steps along the way, exercising that muscle called faith. And all of a sudden, we don't, we don't worry about that anymore. We don't distrust God because of that anymore. We follow, we obey, we trust. And God blesses. Our, there's this co-relationship between my capacity to believe, exercise faith, and God's blessing. Because we get to choose every day how much God chooses to bless us. Bless us. The story is found in Luke chapter 7. It's a wonderful story. I became aware of this story just weeks after my conversion some 30 years ago. And it's been a very favorite of mine ever since. It taught me about faith. I'd like to read the story in Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, follow with me starting at verse 1. When Jesus had, fin- Jesus had finished saying all this, he went back to Capernaum. So Capernaum is this sort of headquarters for Jesus during his Galilean ministry. I've been to Capernaum a couple times. Do we have any? Okay, we don't. Um, a, a couple times. And uh, it, it was a, a large city. It's right on the Sea of Galilee. It was sort of the central hub of uh, all roads led to Capernaum in the Galilee. And this is what often Jesus would do. He'd find a headquarters in which he would then go out and do itinerant ministry, but coming back to his headquarters, back to the city. And so he's gone out and done some Galilean ministry, and he's coming back to his headquarters in Capernaum in verse 1, starting at verse 2. Now the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish leaders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to come with them and help this man. If anyone deserves your help, it's he, they said, for he loves the Jews and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this or that, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was, what's the word? What's the word? Amazed. I mean, when was the last time you read that Jesus was amazed by anyone? Another human being. Doesn't that make this story pretty important to find out what amazes Jesus? Wouldn't you like to believe that you could amaze him maybe once in a while? So Jesus was amazed. Turning to the crowd, Jesus said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all the land of Israel. What amazed Jesus? The man's faith. 
And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. This is a story of healing, and it's a wonderful story, but if that's the only thing you get out of this story, you miss the point. It's a story of faith. Amazing faith. Not just your everyday run-of-the-mill faith. This is amazing faith. I mean, we live in a, in a country that... Um, I mean, what, what, what are the credentials that, gets, that sort of we look up to? I mean, we look at the person's uh, bank account. Wow, billionaire. Oh, look at their education. Look at all the letters following their name. Uh, look at uh, the, the house they live in, the car they drive, how many vacations they have, how beautiful their spouse is. These are the things our society sort of uh, look up as the credentials of something that could amaze. I mean, we... I know this is hard to believe. We live in a country that pays young men $7 million a year because they can slap a puck 100 miles an hour. Woo! And yet we pay child care workers minimum wage. I mean, how messed up are we? What amazed Jesus was this man's faith. You want to excite Jesus? It'll be your faith that excites him. It's one of the hardest things we find day to day, but it's a thing that will May, or excite Jesus, our capacity to believe him at his word and follow through on his promises because we just know he's rock solid on this. This is the stuff that gets Jesus excited. So let's go back to the story. We have a story of Jesus coming back into Capernaum. Some Jewish leaders come out to, to greet him before he comes back. They've been sent by a Roman officer. In, verse, uh, in, ver- in the King James Version, in the NIV, they refer to this Roman officer as a centurion, a Roman centurion. And centurions were, they were, in essence, the backbone of the Roman army. My son one, has gone on to university. He took some uh, Roman and Greek classic courses. These are really good courses, by the way, to get a good job following university. I said, thanks, son. Anyway, he does have a job, thank the Lord. But he would come back and tell me some incredible stuff about Roman history and Greek because I love history and he loves it. And he told me all about these rooms. We don't know a lot about this Roman centurion. We don't know his name. We actually know quite a bit about Roman centurions. These were, these were the individuals. It took about 20 years in the Roman army before you could become a centurion. And you, were, you had uh, leadership over about 100, 140 different men who would go into battle and die on behalf of not the emperor, but this centurion. They loved them. These were the kind of men who were men's men. They, they were the kind of men that would follow these kind of men into battle. These were honorable men, brave men, often ruthless men. They were often brilliant tacticians in their own right. They'd go into battle, and when things were going awry, he would be able to move his men in the right position to be able to turn the course of the action. Every commander-in-chief of going into battle that day knew the strength of his, his centurion corps because it was on that basis he knew whether he was going to win that day or not. These were significant individuals, highly respected, honored individuals, often wealthy individuals after so many years in the army. And Jesus finds this centurion living in Capernaum. The first thing we learn from Dr. Luke, who writes this story, is that he was a man who was willing to sacrifice. These these elders come in and I think it's in verse 5, they say, he's a good one, Jesus. He's not one of these other Roman officers who, who hate us, because most of them did, hated the Jews. He, he's a good one. He, out of his own wallet, his own purse, he built us a worship center. Can you imagine someone this morning coming, Pastor Barry, saying, here, you need something bigger. Here's $4 million. Go build something. 
This is what this man has done. He's, he's supplied the funds to be able to build this worship of this synagogue for them, and they're fairly impressed. He's obviously showing a different style of leadership with the Jews than most other Roman officers. The next thing Dr. Luke tells us about him in verse, uh, uh, in verse uh, 2 and 3 that is, is that he's merciful. Uh, he, he's asking this, this young rabbi named Jesus, who he's heard stories about his wonder-working, miraculous power, he's asking him to come and heal his, his servant, his slave, who's near unto death. And, and I can, it makes him stand out from other Roman officers because I can assure you most Roman officers wouldn't give a plug nickel for their slaves. If they're dying, they would say to one of their supervising or manager, managing slaves and say, well, on Saturday morning, go to the Agora, the marketplace, and buy a new one. They're property. That's all they are, property. He shows compassion to a slave. That makes him stand out from his other compatriots. And he asks Jesus to come and heal him. The third thing Dr. Luke tells us about him is that he's humble. In verse 6, he he realizes who Jesus is and he's coming. Uh, The same story in the Gospel of Matthew even emphasizes this very point even more. And he basically says, just from where you are, say the words and I know he'll be healed. I'm not even worthy. That's the word he uses. I'm not even worthy to have you come into my home. Humility. Humility. And I imagine he had one of the largest homes in town. I don't know this for certain, but there's every reason to believe he's probably the most powerful man in the area. Because what often happened is in Rome, they would go and send the army out, and the army did what they did really well. They'd march into a land, and they would conquer the land. But the politicians back in Rome often enjoyed Rome so much, they didn't want to follow the army out to where they were. And so often it took weeks, months, sometimes years for the political apparatus in Rome to catch up with the Roman army wherever they might be conquering. And so many of the commanders of these armies would have to place some of their most uh, talented uh, officers in places of of, uh, uh, political uh, appointments like magistrates and mayors and governors until the political apparatus finally caught up with them from Rome. And there's every reason to believe that this centurion is the governor of the entire Capernaum region. He is the most powerful man in the entire area. He's not a man to be trifled with. And despite the fact he's the most powerful man, he shows this deference and humility to this young 30-something-year-old rabbi named Jesus who the political establishment can't stand. He doesn't have some mega church down in Jerusalem. He hasn't got you know, TV waves beaming all over the world. He's a nobody in the respects to the, politi- or the uh, religious establishment. Uh, in Paul's day, you weren't even considered fully a man until you're 40 years old. Jesus, young 30s. He's, he's really a, a nobody in many respects, and yet this most powerful man in the region shows humility and deference to this young rabbi. So he's an interesting individual. And I find when this, uh, this altercation happens between he and Jesus, we learn some wonderful things. In verse 7 and 8, he says, I understand something as an officer. And he relates it to faith, the authority that we can have by faith. He understands authority. He's a military officer. He has those above him, and he obeys. He has those below him, and they must obey. Are there the consequences that, that those who do not obey? 
But clearly in verse 7 and verse 8, he says, I say something, I say go, and they go. I say come, and they come. Uh, my, because of my very stature as a centurion, because of my officer level, because of that very fact, my very words have authority. And so I say something, and Barry will do it as an officer. And the relationship he's trying to make is, Jesus, you, I understand, I believe you have that authority by virtue of who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Emmanuel. You are the God with us. Your very words have authority. So just say the word, and I believe. Amazing faith. Jesus stood back and said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Does that mean more faith than John? His mother Mary? The other apostles? Apparently so. They were people of faith. Oh, yeah. But Jesus says forevermore, this is the man who so impressed them by his faith. So what do we learn from this? The few minutes we have left, a couple things I want to leave. There are many applications we could have to this passage, but I want to leave you with a couple. The first one is this, that great faith is not always characteristic of great people, great Christians even. We sometimes think the Billy Grahams who are up front are the people of great faith, and many times they are. But after 30-plus years of pastoral ministry, I have discovered in the churches I pastored that many of the people of greatest faith were those quiet, behind-the-scenes people. Boy, I used to try to hang out with them. I often, in all the churches I pastored, put them into what I call the pastor's prayer team. I needed people of faith praying for our church, praying for my family and I. There are not often the upfront people, or not always, sorry, the upfront people. They're people of faith. Find them. Make them your friends. Because so much about this is not taught. It's more caught. You've got to watch how they live life. And then imitate. And learn to amaze Jesus. When I was moving into this role, or just before moving into this presidential role, I was pastoring in a church in a border town in, in, uh, in Ontario, Sarnia, Ontario, borders right onto Michigan into Port Huron. And I was sitting down with my staff on a Tuesday morning, and we were a little half-circled together, and I said, so how was, your, how was your weekend? What did you do as families? And our children's director, Catherine, said, you know, we did something differently. The, uh, the, the old theater had just been refurbished in Port Huron in Michigan, <clears throat> beautiful 100-year-old theater that they just redone all the wood and the chandeliers and the brass and the red curtains. You know, you can imagine how beautiful that thing was. But on Saturday mornings, they were having children's cartoons shown. And so she took her two children at the time, uh, Julia, six, and David uh, was, uh, Julia was seven, David was five, and they went on a Saturday morning to see the children's cartoons, and they came in, and little David walked in, and he just thought he was walking into like a temple. Wow all that dark, polished wood that no one could ever afford to build with anymore, or beautiful, large chandeliers that they'd done just beautiful job with. He just thought he'd come into a temple. You know, he's four or five years old. Walked into the auditorium, and he was just crawling with kids and young moms and dads trying to keep Junior in his seat and, and everything. And they, they, got, they got in, and they sat down in the center, and then the lights went down, and David is just going, he's never been to a theater before. He doesn't know what to expect. The lights go down and the projector light goes up onto the screen and the screen is like two stories high. Big, huge screen. And, and, and the first thing that he sees, you know what they do if, you, if, you, if you've gone to a movie recently? They show you like, you know, 40 minutes of commercials because where are you going to go, right? Where are you going to go? They got you. And the first thing that comes up is a Pepsi-Cola commercial. 
and a big, large class, two stories high, come. And David's just looking at this glass with all, you know, the condensation. It's perspiring, and it says Pepsi-Cola on the glass. And, and then all of a sudden, a, a bottle of Pepsi comes into, into his screen and starts to pour into it, and blah, 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 blah. And he's just watching the fizz is coming, and uh, popping, and, 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 and the foam is coming over. And you know what these evil marketers are doing. I need a Pepsi right now. I'm telling you, I'm as dry as death. You know what they're doing. He's four, four years old. He doesn't understand marketing. And then, and then a voice comes, uh, or four words come onto the screen, but he's not really great in reading, so the voiceover says the four words. And the four words are this. What do you want? They want you to get out of your chair and go get a Pepsi-Cola before the movie starts, right? He's four years old. Give me a break. He doesn't understand Madison Avenue technique. But he does know this, that mom and dad told him it's polite to answer a man when he asks a question. And right in the middle of that, David raised his hands in the chair and yelled out, I want God! Four, four years old, folks. And the place cracked up. And when Catherine told me the story, I thought, wow, great faith. Great faith, not always revealed by great people. Because four-year-old boys put me to shame all the time. They get faith. If Jesus says, go this way, they just go. Okay, let's go. Jesus says, go this way. Okay, let's go. Jesus says, jump. Okay, let's jump. They just do it. We, in church, exercise faith. Let's strike up a committee, and we're going to study this for the next three years. Now, I'm not against us not planning, right? You just got to look at very casual look at the book of Proverbs, and it talks a lot about the importance of planning. I think we sometimes plan so much because we're scared. Step of, instead of stepping out in faith, let's go strike up a committee. Or think about it. Instead of stepping out in faith. Jesus is amazed by those who step out in faith. He's absolutely amazed. I would love to think that once in a while, you amazed him. I amazed him. Not out of any arrogance or pride. Just plain gratitude for all he's done for us. Wouldn't it be nice to amaze him once in a while? I stood before my pastor. As a young man, I was in art college. My dream was to become a film director, go work for Disney down in California. That was my dream. I'd just come to Christ a year and a half earlier while in art college. And I'm standing before him scared to death, telling him that I think God may be calling me in the ministry, but I mean, you can't take me seriously. I draw pictures for a living. Give me a break, right? And my pastor looked at me, and he was great. I just saw him two days ago at a, at a funeral of a mutual friend. And he looked at me, and he warned me. He said, is this a calling? Very clearly, is this a calling? Because that'll be the thing that keeps you in the ministry some days. Says, and, and, and then he encouraged me with a verse that his pastor had given to him 30 plus years before. That man just passed away this week and we were at his funeral three days ago. Hal McBain, one of the last founders of our fellowship here in Canada, uh, dying at 99, seven weeks shy of his 100th birthday. Hal's with the Lord. My pastor visited him as he was a pig farmer, went to him thinking, he'll never take me seriously, I'm a pig farmer. I'm about going to the ministry. He gave him 
this verse. Hal gave Stu this verse. Stu gave me this verse. And I want to give this verse as we close to you. It's my gift to you. It's the reason why you're here this morning, although you didn't know. Jeremiah, chapter 20, verse 9. I can't stop. If I say I'll not mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my heart like a fire, like a fire in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. God's Word has been speaking to you this last year, this last month, this last week. God's Word, I hope, has been speaking to you regularly, consistently. What has God been telling you to step out and and go do? What is it that you have been not pursuing by faith because you're frightened? You're not being courageous. You're being disobedient. What is it that you're missing out on in God's blessing because you're choosing not to step up in faith. I don't know what it is. I have to believe the Spirit of God is telling you right now. What is it? What is it you're just fatigued by? You just can't hold it in anymore, as Jeremiah said. You're tired. You need to pursue it. You need to finally step up and be counted for the Lord and pursue it. It may be large. It may be small. I don't know what it is. Maybe it was the doctor's appointment they had a week ago in the news and it's not good. Maybe it's It's at work, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your grandkids. I don't know what it is, but I know there's something that the Spirit of God is telling you to step up and believe God for it and step out in faith, trusting with complete obedience. Do it. And I think what you'll find out is that God still parts the Red Sea in 2016. I think God still gives us daily manna to make that next step the next day. But you've got to take a step because the man is only enough for the day. What is it? It'll be fear. Fear. I'm not talking big time fear. It's the little fears that will kill your faith. But it will be faith that will make you fearless for the Lord. My prayer is that you'll be fearless in all your ways as an individual and as a church. Amen? Let's pray to that. And Father, thank you for the story, the story of faith. May you, Father, just apply what it is we need to learn. May we be attentive to the still, small voice of the Spirit as He's speaking to us even now. Help us to amaze you this week with our faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.